Coming up today, how to cope with working from home, the behavioural science behind handling a pandemic, and an opportunity to witness our rapid descent into news overload madness. Welcome to the first ever Working From Home edition of the YGK podcast, your essential weekly catch up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hi. Natasha Vanell. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when the entire wide team and much of the world went into lockdown. Across the globe, businesses have sent employees home, schools have shut, countries have closed their borders and entire nations have essentially shut down to try and slow the spread of the coronavirus. It was also the week when an EU commissioner asked Netflix to switch to standard definition where possible in order to ease the strain on internet providers. According to UK-based ISPs, online traffic has risen by between 20 and 30% as more people are staying home because of coronavirus. And the film and streaming industry has also been affected in other ways. This week, it was announced that dozens of films and TV shows have been delayed due to the outbreak, including The Next James Bond, Stranger Things and The Lord of the Rings TV series. This was also the week when Sony unveiled more details for the PlayStation 5, which is slated for release late this year. The console will have a 3D audio engine and a solid-state hard drive, but we still have no idea what it's going to look like. And finally, this was the week when Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced a £330 billion bailout to save the British economy from the coronavirus crisis. This involved a brand new loan scheme and grants to businesses, but unfortunately has done little to help calm the stock market. We should uh, mention how we're actually doing this. Uh, So we're all uh, on a Zoom call sitting in various parts of London. I can see Vicky's kitchen, Amit's bedroom, maybe, I'm guessing. Yeah, he's giving me a thumbs up. Natasha's got a guitar in the background, I think, and a lamp. And Matt Reynolds, you just got a bag, a bin bag tied to the handle of a door. (laughs) That's my recycling bag. I'm just giving my bit for the environment. (laughs) Put some thought into your Zoom background, Matt. Have some pride. Yeah, it's not great, is it? So I can push the door back, but it's, um, it's, yeah. I can just see more of the bag now. Up your game. Uh, Yeah, so this is a very unusual experience for us. We've been working from home since last Friday, and we will be for the foreseeable future, but that's not going to stop us from doing the podcast. Um, We do hope you'll bear with us if there are some technical glitches or the audio quality isn't quite as good as it normally is. But we'll be talking a bit more about how we're putting the show together and uh, getting on with working from home a little bit later in the program. All right, what did you learn this week? Let's start with Natasha. Oh, well, I was sort of desperately searching for something that wasn't coronavirus related yesterday. um, And I stumbled across this wonderful fact. Scientists have discovered a wonder chicken, which is the oldest modern bird fossil. Why they call it the wonder chicken, I don't know. But it is an ancestor of a goose, a chicken and a duck that lived in prehistoric times. Scientists were saying it's cute and small and they claimed it would have been really tasty. Like how they reached that decision of like, you know, oh, yes, the qualifier of it would be tasty. I don't know. But that's what they've been up to. While suppose if you going mad. take the best bits of a goose, a chicken and a duck and put it in a delicious, cute, small package, then you have a very tasty bird, I guess. Guaranteed. 
Guaranteed. What did you learn this week, Matt Reynolds? So I, on a somewhat sober note, so I was looking at coronavirus testing uh, rates and I learned that as of March the 9th, South Korea had carried out coronavirus tests on around uh, 210,000 people, which is a rate of 4,000 tests for every million people in the country. That means it has the highest testing rate of any other country except Bahrain, but like Bahrain has a really small population, so it kind of skews things a little bit. Um, at the same point at time, uh, the UK had performed 387 tests for every million citizens, which is a little bit worrying because we know the WHO has been putting a massive emphasis on testing. So there's a, lots of, there's a big gap between different countries on that front. But just to add a bit more to that, in the UK, um, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said that they're going to try and ramp that <laughs> testing capability in the coming weeks up to 25,000 a day. Yeah, that's right. We're not there at the moment. So I think yesterday we tested around three and a half thousand. So we've got a long way to go. And the UK's testing priorities have not been, uh, uh, you know, not particularly wide. So it kind of remains to be seen how we'll get there. But that certainly does seem to be uh, the drive. Amit, how about you? What did you learn this week? I learned that in Japan in 2018, 83% of lost mobile phones got returned to their owners, often on the same day. Japan has this amazingly high kind of success rate for returning lost property, whether it's phones, wallets, or ID cards. Uh, in one study, researchers compared dropping phones and wallets in New York and Tokyo. In Tokyo, 88% of phones that were lost uh, lost by the researchers, so they kind of lost all these phones uh, deliberately and then waited to see how many got got given back to them. So 88% of phones lost by the researchers were handed into police by Tokyo residents. In New York, that figure was 6%. Wow, that's huge. 88%. I mean, I know yeah. we, we would all in, endeavour to return a lost item, I'm sure, but the fact that in New York it was just 6% of people. I've lost a phone yeah, in New York and was did, unable did get to get it back? it back. No, I tried to and, and, you know, it was gone forever. I'm just a statistic now. <laughs> You should have lost your phone in Tokyo. Um, I learned this week, similarly to uh, to Matt, um, something to well bring the news, uh, the mood down, I guess, a little bit. Uh, the, turns out the bubonic plague is still around. Um, around 650 cases are reported each year, mostly in Madagascar, where the plague comes back each and every year during the um, the season for it, um, which is in the warmer months. Uh, and there are also regular cases in the Congo and Peru. So there we go. That was uh, the plague that caused the Black Death in Europe. That's cheery, anyway, isn't um, it? We're going to be, I know, isn't it just? Uh, so we're going to be talking quite a bit about coronavirus about on this fact? edition of... What? What about Vicky's oh, fact? God, James, oh, you're going yeah. rogue. Uh, yeah, I'm very sorry. Vicky, what did you learn this week? <laughs> well, I was just going to not say anything and politely let you move on. But no, the I'll, fact must be heard. Yeah, I'm going to end up on a more uplifting note as well, because, you know, if you look out of your window while you're stuck inside your house, you will see that it is actually becoming springtime outside. The daffodils are out and the tulips are about to flower. Um, so I have a tulip fact. At one point in the 17th century, a single tulip could be worth more than a house or a person's annual income. This was because of tulip mania when investors drove the price of tulips really high until the price suddenly dropped when everyone realised that the situation was just ridiculous. And it's considered the first real financial bubble. Tulips. Tulips. There we go. That We've got wonder chickens, we've got tulips... Um, and then Matt and I with some sad facts about uh, pandemics and Amit with a lovely fact about uh, how lovely people in Tokyo are. Um, so uh, 
light and dark. Uh, as I was attempting to say before uh, Natasha called me up on being rubbish, um, we're going to be talking a lot about coronavirus on this edition of the show um, because there are five of us on the show and we're not able to do that when we're doing this in the office because we only have four microphones. Um, this week we're all recording it on um, recording apps on our phones. We're then going to sync up all the audio files so hopefully it sounds alright. But it does mean that we can have more people on the show. We were going to have Matt Burgess as well but he's beavering away on a story so maybe next week we'll have a six-person podcast for the first time so it might go on a bit longer than usual but um we figured that's probably okay because nobody's commuting these days or at least you shouldn't be um and we're going to be focusing an awful lot on coronavirus uh probably for the next few weeks our first story this week then is on behavioral science which has become seemingly a really really important part of how we're handling this pandemic matt reynolds that's right so we're recording this on thursday march the 19th and people listeners in the uk will know that on monday the prime minister boris johnson announced a really uh, big uh, set of far-reaching recommendations that basically signaled that the kind of the government's coronavirus response was getting really really serious so the kind of the advice the government advice in the uk at the moment is that uk citizens are uh, advised to avoid pubs restaurant theatres and bars and those who are over 70 or have underlying health conditions are advised to uh, significantly limit all face-to-face interaction where possible. We also saw last night that the schools uh, and nurseries will be shut from Friday. Um, and it, you know, goes even further than that. So uh, people who have you know symptoms of coronavirus, they're being asked to self-isolate for seven days. Um, and if one person in the household has become ill, the entire household must self-isolate or must isolate as a whole for fourteen days. And this is a massive, massive difference since last week. Because remember, it seems like a really long time, right? But last week, the advice was basically wash your hands. Uh, you know, maybe don't shake hands, uh, catch a cold, uh, you know, catch a cough, bin it. So things have really, really shifted in the space of a week so what changed and uh, this not within a week it was more or less overnight right yeah, so that changed. Certainly on, on, on Monday, that, that was a kind of the, the big shift. Um, so we've known about the government's kind of coronavirus plan for a little while. So it was published on March the 3rd. And this is the idea that we'd kind of delay it, we'd start by containing it, and we'd move to the delay phase. Um, but what might be responsible for this kind of big shift on Monday was, an, was a report from Imperial College London, which basically compared two different ways of combating coronavirus. And it basically said that there's this kind of strategy that's known as mitigation, and that involves isolating sus- suspected cases quarantining households um, and social distancing the most vulnerable people for around three months at the peak of uh, the outbreak. And this, this, this modelling, which is based on kind of new data coming from Italy, which is obviously you know, the place in, in Europe that's experiencing the worst outbreak by far, it found that if the UK followed this kind of mitigate strategy, uh, it would overwhelm intensive care unit beds and would lead to a quarter of a million uh, uh, excess deaths in great, in great Britain. And that's in a best case scenario. Amit. So we've switched from mitigation. So what strategy are we following now to try and avoid this, uh, you know, these 250,000 deaths? Yeah, so so technically, if you're talking to the government, they will say this is all part of the delay strategy, right? So if you remember this March 3rd strategy contained delay um, and then like research and then mitigate, which actually was a kind of bit of a different kind of mitigate in some ways, they'll say that delay was basically, we had a lot of options, right? So the, I think the government is kind of keen to emphasise that actually we always had all these options on the table and uh, this is not, not as such dramatic about faces as it might seem. But certainly from a kind of public 
perspective, it really does feel uh, big. And the difference between suppression and mitigation is that suppression involves the kind of the social distancing of the entire population. So absolutely everyone should stay inside uh, where possible, which is what we're doing right now. And the added possibility of school and university closures, which is what we're seeing as well. And a really important bit of suppression is that although mitigation models kind of three months of having these policies in place, for suppression in their modelling, they, they modelled five months, but they say, really, we might need to do this until we get a vaccine. So it could be 18 months of having uh, social distancing policies in place or at least having them uh, in uh interim measures. And the whole reason for this is to reduce demand on ICU beds. So the UK only has around 5,000 of those. And the problem, the, the kind of the imperial modelling showed, is that deaths come when those IC, ICU beds get overwhelmed. So the whole idea of suppression is keep the number of ICU patients within the UK's surge limit, which is 5,000 beds in the, in the whole of the UK. And part of that was off the back of what they were seeing in Italy, as you said, in the Imperial paper, the number of patients who were being hospitalised with coronavirus that had to be put in intensive care was very, very high. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the government's, um, uh, you know, mitigation modelling, that first kind of scenario that I talked about, even in the best case scenario, that's the one with a quarter of a million deaths, uh, ICU units would, would have a kind of They'd, they'd go eight times over their surge limit. So the kind of really important boundary that people are looking at is basically um, how many people are entering ICU beds every single day. And that may well be what you see the government responding to because they know as soon as that capacity gets too high, uh, people are not going to be able to access ventilators. People are going to n you know, not have the kind of life support that they need. And that's what leads to uh, deaths from coronavirus. So it's all about uh, keeping that number as low as possible. Vicky. So, I mean, how do we convince people to stay indoors for so long? Because it's a big ask of people who, you know, aren't feeling any symptoms, don't know anyone who has any symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because right now, uh, the government advice is, let's everyone, if you can, uh, stay, you know, stay indoors. But it's quite, quite vague advice. And, and there's different advice for over 70s. Um, so this advice kind of comes from a, a kind of a group or has been informed by a group of behavioural scientists advising the government. So the government's got this um, scientific, scientific uh, advisory uh, kind of committee called SAGE. Um, and one, one part of that group is a kind of set of behavioural scientists. And they're saying, well, here's how we can you know, try and get people to... Uh, uh, you know, follow this advice. And really the kind of balancing act they're trying to strike right now is make it feel like the response is proportionate to the threat. So what they don't want to do is come out too early and people are like, but there's not that many people dying compared to Italy. Like, why do we need to uh, do this? And then people don't take the lockdown um, like seriously enough or they might just not be able to, able to comply uh, with the lockdown. But of course, if you do things too late, then you, you kind of risk things uh, happening as that imperial model demonstrates. You do things too late and ICU beds uh, get overwhelmed. So the, the kind of the government, what it's been doing has been slowly ratcheting up uh, these um, you know, policies. And if you see, uh, you know, even yesterday, Boris Johnson was not w ruling out you know, lockdown or you know, you know, pub closures and those things. It, it's, it's kind of been quite steady. So we don't have such a kind of abrupt uh, close down as you might have seen in, in Italy. And there's an issue here with the UK being a couple of days or weeks behind some countries in Europe that are experiencing this far more seriously. We can see what's happening in Italy, but we're not quite there yet. We're not even where France or Germany are, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So I think, you, I mean, you look at Italy that has 37,000 cases. I think Germany is, is around kind of 11,000, 12,000, or at least it was uh, was yesterday. You know, and in, in the UK, I think we're on kind of 2,500. So we, we really aren't quite there yet. And I think the problem is, is that we can look to Italy and we can look to France and we say, well, they're doing these things. Why aren't we doing uh, these things? And the government's I, th- I think it's essentially thinking these things might actually be in place for a really long time. We need to give people the chance to prepare. And also, they're kind of betting that when you say everyone should stay inside, that a certain number of people are going to take that advice. So you will reduce the amount of people in the street. It's just you won't reduce it as much as we're having an enforced lockdown and police will fine you if you go out in the street, which is what you get in France. So it leaves options so the government can kind of, um, you know, reduce the number and reduce it again. So this isn't, it's far from the kind of final step of our plan, I imagine. But there are still people out there that are going to work and they're out in the streets. There's loads of queues and pubs, um, lots of people going to the park, lots of people going about as normal. I mean, you were talking about the fact that in, if enough people are isolating, that'll be enough. But, but is this actually working if still so many people aren't taking this seriously? Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly the point. Honestly, so, you know, I, I was kind of out and about a little bit, uh, popping to the office to get, get a monitor and, you know, walking down the street you know, in London, uh, you know, loads of business are open, people are out, people are in pubs, like you said, Natasha. And I think the problem, some of the behavioural uh, scientists I spoke to said, is that it's all very well saying you've got to stay at home or stay at home if you're able. But unless people have the support that they need to do that, they're not going to be able to do it. And Although we saw the Chancellor kind of put in place a lot of um, uh, you know, policies for businesses and for homeowners, um, there hasn't been a whole bunch of protection for you know, more vulnerable workers, so renters, although there is, um, uh, I think, uh, I think there's, they, they said basically they will stop people being evicted, but that doesn't really help with people's um, incomes, you know, people that are in insecure work, people in the hospitality industry who, who can't work from home. And the problem is, is that if you say to these people, um, you know, you've got to stay inside, you've got to self-isolate, you're saying you've got to make no money you know you're not giving them a choice and I think that this is the this is the kind of problem this is why we're maybe seeing people um, uh, you know uh, kind of you know flouting these uh, uh, recommendations now what might come into play here is a sense of shame which is kind of a really powerful uh, shaper of social norms so we saw this with um, you know the plastic bag tax or even like um, you know the uh, picking up dog poo which remember I don't know 10 years ago really wasn't such a big thing at all um, but you know, society can move and make people uh, have feel, feelings of shame and social obligation towards things. And that's why you're starting to hear the Prime Minister and people in the government say, well, you're doing a duty to everyone. It's our duty to the nation. It's our duty to the most vulnerable people in society if you stay in, in your homes. Because they're hoping to tap into this feeling of guilt and hopefully that will motivate people. And that might be a bigger motivator than uh, even scientific advice or even the Prime Minister saying it. But we've seen in other countries that that really hasn't worked right and if we're talking about the UK being a few days or weeks behind other countries in Europe and by the time people are listening to this they might see the outcome of these political decisions that are being made but in France in Paris in particular um, when President Macron announced that people had to stop going out isolate themselves away at home minimize social interaction that was just before a nice sunny weekend Everyone flooded the streets of Paris. There was um, people shaking hands and kissing each other on the cheek and sharing meals and sitting by the Seine and 
everyone carried on as normal. And then a few days uh, later, after he'd made the initial address, calling on people to sort of appeal to their conscience that they should behave, um, he essentially put the entire of France on lockdown. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because, I mean, it's, it's quite anecdotal, but there are videos of people in Brooklyn that are shouting at people uh, that are walking on the street. So there is a sense that if you can kind of pass this over to um, to society, that people maybe start to take this responsibility. Also, the, um, uh, you know, in Ireland, uh, Leo Varadkar was, was saying, you know, very much like we need to cocoon older people, right? It's our responsibility to protect them. So I think that you're starting to see the, um, the kind of, the, the way we talk about this shifting from trying, you know, Know, save yourself like by washing your hands or whatever to actually you need to do something by by staying inside so i think that we're you know we're seeing the kind of tone around this uh you know around our response changing that's trying to kind of get people to say well actually if you see someone in the street and they you know they shouldn't be you know they should kind of maybe feel bad about that i think there's also a lot of confusion as well which is probably leading to some of this where people don't really know what they are allowed to do and what they're not you know Boris Johnson has specifically mentioned pubs and bars, um, but you know, is it okay to go to a gym? Is it okay to go for a walk? Is it all right to see one friend if you're sitting in a park? Um, you know, I think maybe part of the uh, part of you know what we're seeing is just people not knowing what is classified as as acceptable and what isn't because. I guess that's quite hard to define. You know, we hear these terms, social distancing, isolation, lockdown, and they're, they're a bit nebulous, really. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that what you'll see, you know, until you start doing stuff like shutting pubs, like <laughs> shutting pubs shows a really clear message that you can't go to the pub because you physically are unable to. But at the moment, if you say, just don't go to the pub, well, pubs are still going to stay open because they don't want to cut their income uh, too early. And it also sends a message that, well, you might want to. You know, we also shouldn't go out and eat McDonald's every day, but you, you can, right? And it's open. And I think that's exactly right, that we've got this, this, this sense that until we have some really clear boundaries uh, and really clear, probably, you know, enforced uh, uh, regulations around this, you might see people kind of pushing it. But the modelling kind of takes that into account. It suggests that actually, if you just put this policy in place and you just ask people to enforce it themselves, a certain amount of people just won't do it. And that kind of gives us this little bit of wiggle room uh, to know that we can kind of ratchet things up even further. So I think the government will be expecting this response of people, even if it kind of is quite disappointing and pretty surprising to see on the street. Um, I think that this will be accounted for in the modelling. So that we're, we're probably on track with how they would think we, we would be responding to this. So we've got listeners all over the world um, and all over the UK. Some of them will be in countries where these lockdowns are already in effect. Some of them will be in parts of the UK or parts of the world where these policies are being talked about as things that might be bought in. But in general, as a citizen of this planet, um, what's the best way to be behaving right now, Matt Reynolds? Just sort of some, some general tips as to how we should be going about our lives. Yeah, I would say, so Vicky, to your point, like, should you be going to the gym? You know, I, I would say if you can, uh, move your exercise to maybe walking outside or running outside because you want to be trying to keep away from people and gyms are like not great places uh, for spreading disease. Um, I think that you want to be kind of cutting down 
any social interaction that you can afford to do, and especially try not to go to uh, restaurants or places with large groups or you know large gatherings of friends. You know, if you like, obviously it's really important to stay up with your mental health as well. So I think that if you're talking about having you know one friend to come visit or two friends to come visit, especially if they say walk to yours and don't take public transport, I think that you know it's not a case of you completely isolate yourself because actually that could end up causing harm on a personal level as well. I think it's just, can you avoid uh, being in large groups of people? Can you avoid being in you know, multiple people in enclosed spaces? And can you avoid going to places where there's lots of people or lots of people have been? And if you can cut all of those down, as well as like, you know, just being a bit um, conscientious in supermarkets. The important thing is the most vulnerable people are people with underlying conditions and the over 70s. So you know, don't store all that food if you know that you probably will be able to pop out in two weeks. Because I think we need to realise that the people this lockdown, if a lockdown does come into place, is going to affect is the older people and the more vulnerable people. So I think it's all about trying to make sure that you can kind of protect those and be ready to help if that, that is necessary. Podcast at wired.co.uk with how you're working your way through this global crisis, both um, with the way that you work and the way you go about your lives. As I said, I know a lot of you are listening from all over the world. We really like to hear different experiences about how people are getting through this pandemic. Podcast at wired.co.uk and I'm sure over the coming weeks there'll be plenty of opportunities to share your stories but we really would love to hear from you. Um, We're coming at the coronavirus story from a number of angles Um, and our second story is perhaps one of the more unusual ones that we've gone with so far Amit. It's about Warcraft. Yeah, it's about so it's about the video game world of Warcraft, but it's also about uh, kind of touches on some of the things Matt was saying about behavioural science. Um, so one of the problems with kind of modelling disease outbreaks and doing this kind of behavioural science is that humans are really, really irrational. You know, in a computer model, they'll only behave in the ways that you've programmed the model to behave. But we've seen tons of like really unpredictable behaviour from people during the coronavirus outbreak already. We've seen football fans, you know, when their match has been called off or played behind closed doors, going to the stadium and congregating in a large group anyway and just, like, hanging around outside. We've seen uh, people in Ukraine protesting uh, a quarantine centre, going to the quarantine centre and throwing stones at the bus, carrying the people being evacuated from Wuhan. We've seen people here stockpiling toilet roll when there's no indication that there's a shortage. So to try and kind of understand, like, human irrationality, you need, like experimental data and so some behavioural economists have been turning to video games um, and there's been particular interest in a incident that happened in 2005 in the online game world of Warcraft. So what exactly happened and why is it such a useful model? So um, Warcraft if you don't know it's kind of like a massively multiplayer online game so it's like a, a game world and there's kind of cities and bits of country and kind of caves and jungles and things like that and you play you log in and you play as your character and you interact with other humans but also with kind of uh, computer controlled players so in 2005 um, the developers Blizzard unveiled like a new software update that uh, added like a a jungle like area of the game world uh, that was intended for people with relatively powerful characters Uh, and in in the center of this section there was a a, an encounter that you had to have with this kind of winged serpent uh, and this this character had the ability to infect your character with a disease in the game that was called corrupted blood and that corrupted blood disease could then be passed on to other characters who were nearby. Uh, so this disease was kind of designed for use within this one area of the game, and it was designed to make fighting slightly more difficult by slowly draining a player's health. But uh, there were kind of unintended consequences that Blizzard didn't foresee when they, they wrote this bit of code that kind of created this disease. Um, 
so basically what happened was because Warcraft gives players the ability to kind of fast travel around, you can jump from a remote location to a city instantly um, to like stock up on supplies or whatever. It meant that people who were infected with the virus started carrying it, you know, inadvertently carrying it back to these cities, back to mass population centers before they could die from it or be healed from it. Uh, so that kind of meant that this virus, which was intended for this this area that only really powerful players were meant to go to, just spread all over the game world and started affecting people who were really vulnerable to it and whose characters just died. And you can see the parallels with coronavirus already, right? You know, it kind of originated in this kind of remote jungle kind of area. Um, uh, coronavirus is thought to have come from um, bats in kind of a remote area of China and then kind of spread to uh, urban centres and the, the growth of it just accelerated. Um, so... There are a couple of other things that kind of made it much worse than it would have been otherwise. So uh, unlike the coronavirus, this disease could also be caught by people's like in-game pets. Uh, and people would put their pets into like stasis. And then when they said so this is like a, a feature in the game where you can kind of send your pet away when you're about to face an enemy and you don't want the pet to get killed, basically. So you can send your pet away and it basically goes into suspended animation. And uh, when people were bringing their pets out of suspended animation, these infected animals were kind of starting new outbreaks of the disease uh, so that's one reason why this didn't go away after a few hours uh, and then the other thing is that the disease could also infect like non-playable characters in the game like shopkeepers who are designed to be invincible so they just became kind of super spreaders because they'd come in contact to a lot of players and they would never die and it basically created this kind of in-game full-blown pandemic and there were kind of skeletons piling up in, in sort of the, the urban areas of the game and and yeah, it was just a, a sort of in-game pandemic that had been created completely by accident. So how did players react to this bizarre situation? I mean, what sort of behaviour could we observe from them? Yeah, so that's what makes it really interesting. It's kind of looking at the ways that human players reacted to a, a contagious disease. Uh, and we kind of saw the full range of human behaviour in this. So some players were really selfless. Uh, some of, the, some of them tried to kind of be first responders, so they had the ability to kind of heal, so they would travel to the, the epicentre of the epidemic and try and heal infected players. But actually what this meant in practice was that they often ended up kind of contracting the disease themselves and then spreading it around as they travel to other cities to try and do more healing. Uh, we've seen parallels of, of kind of healthcare workers um, here seeming to be quite vulnerable to, to the virus in certain cases. Other players were more selfish, so, you know, they just kind of carried on as normal, you know, didn't care about the fact that they, if their character was kind of okay, they would spread the disease around and not really change their behaviour much. Other people actually actively tried to infect as many other people as possible. Uh, so, you know, uh, can, like, and one of, the, one of the economists I spoke to who wrote a paper about this kind of drew a parallel with people continuing to kind of go out or go to work or go to pubs when they're sick. So you kind of saw this, this kind of... Uh, malicious behavior almost it's not quite the same in real life but it kind of there is a parallel there um and also more people got infected because people news of the outbreak kind of spread and people started logging in to kind of see what all the fuss was about and then also contracting the disease and kind of spreading it within the game and so what what can people actually learn in real life from this situation because i mean you're mentioning economics um epidemiologists i mean how, how many people can learn from this and what can we gather from this situation aside from selfish people so there's an epidemiologist called Eric Lofgren, who was kind of one of the first people to spot this phenomenon. Uh, he was a player of the game himself and he, he was playing the game and he noticed this happening. And he was like, hang on, this is like a really great like case study of like something we can use. And he thinks we should be doing more with these kind of games. But uh, the research hasn't really kicked on that much since 2005 when this happened, because it's quite difficult to get 
developers on board you can you can imagine that like if you're a a world of warcraft player like a week of an in-game epidemic is kind of fun but like if it goes on for months it's kind of like actually this game isn't fun anymore and you just stop playing it so you can see why uh the people behind an entertainment product like don't necessarily want to um you know build this into part of their game um but we have seen kind of the use of like video games designed for research being used to try and measure human behavior so i spoke to another um, economist economist uh this week uh, called Frederick Chan and in 2013 he designed a 45 game day game that kind of simulated the outbreak of a disease so it was like a everyday players would get information about whether they like the prevalence of the disease and whether or not they'd been infected uh, and each day that they went without getting infected they kind of got points and at the end of the study they were given a cash reward linked to the number of points they won and the game element was you you could decide like whether or not to kind of protect yourself so you could spend some of your points to inoculate yourself against the disease for the next day. Um, And what he found was that by making it as easy as possible for people to protect themselves, you increase the rate of self-protection and the disease became eradicated much more quickly. But he also found that some people just never protected themselves, no matter how easy it was to get a vaccine. Uh, Some people just didn't didn't do it until they got infected and then after that they were more cautious. and it goes to what Matt was saying. So we've talked about uh, kind of the idea that fatigue, like fatigue comes into play. If you bring in these measures to kind of quarantine people too early, they get fatigued. And in this study, he identified kind of self-protection fatigue. So these players that were spending points every day to protect themselves against this disease in the game stop doing it. Uh, and the more the prevalence of a disease kind of drops, the more brazen people get. So you know, when you're kind of, and you're seeing this in China to a certain extent, I'm sure, like when, when you're seeing kind of thousands of cases a day on the news, you're much more likely to protect yourself, to not go outside. But then once those measures kind of start to take effect and the disease prevalence drops, people become more brazen and they start to take risks and they take their foot off the gas. And that's why it's kind of really difficult for diseases like these to become eradicated. Um, this is what it, we, we talk about around coronavirus with the idea of the the second wave or the bounce, right, where it feels like you've got over the worst of it, particularly if you implement really seemingly draconian measures of locking down whole cities and countries, that the second you release that pressure, there's a risk of a bounce. And this is one of the big questions that is being asked in China, that in Hubei province, as they release people from lockdown what happens because the disease is is still out there yeah and i think in china it's probably so in china it's probably more about the authorities and and their kind of whether or not they lift the lockdown but somewhere like in the uk where they've kind of left this people's conscience as to what to do you can see this being a much bigger problem because right now uh a lot of people aren't following the guidelines but even the people that are you know in a month's time if if the the number of cases has dropped if we've managed to flatten the curve if we're leaving it to people's conscience are those people going to suddenly start kind of going out because they think oh well the problem's sorted now you know we we flattened the curve and we can kind of get on with our lives but actually that's why these diseases kind of never reach the bottom because as soon as they approach being eradicated people take the pressure off um and economists call these kind of these kind of uh, decisions that people have to make they call them externalities so these are actions which we take which have a negative impact on a third party but don't impact the people making the decision and this is like a classic case of what we're seeing with coronavirus in the sense that like uh, young people who are not really at risk of any serious health conditions from the disease in the vast majority of cases um, they are kind of being asked to stay indoors for the benefit of other people and they're not going to see a benefit themselves 
So what can we learn about how we tackle coronavirus from this? What was the end game for this disease in World of Warcraft? Yeah, so I guess the, 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 one of the most important things is kind of the, the fact that people's behaviour can have a really, really serious impact on the spread of these things. And I think we obviously, you know, I think obviously the people that are trying to deal with this outbreak do know that. But I think the sense that an individual player can have a really significant effect on society at large is quite interesting. And that's what the World of Warcraft example really hammered home. So in response, like the developers obviously having unleashed a software update, were quite keen to to fix the problem as quickly as possible. So they, they, they basically Im implemented a quarantine, which is really interesting. So some players kind of self-isolated themselves and like went to remote areas of the game and basically avoided going to the cities. And, and the, the creators of the game brought in this quarantine. But as we saw in Lombardy in Italy, people basically kind of escaped the quarantine uh, and ended up kind of spreading the disease more widely. Um, and eventually, so the only way that Blizzard, the developers could find to stop this plague was to take this kind of coordinated worldwide action and basically reset the server and run roll back the update and go back to the way things were before. Obviously, with coronavirus, that's not really an option. Yeah, it's kind of a, a neat ending for the story, but uh, it feels like the ending for the story that we're all living through will be uh, nowhere near as neat and tidy as that. It's a really fascinating story, um, as with everything that we're talking about on the show this week. And every week, we'll include a link to that in the show notes podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we're discussing on the podcast this week. Our third story is coronavirus related, but more to do with what you might be doing right now, which is sitting at home, maybe in a slightly uncomfortable chair, trying to get some work done. Natasha. Yeah, so last week, um, something unprecedented happened. Thousands of people across the UK and elsewhere around the world were told grab your laptop, grab whatever you can and go and work from home. Um, what, what has happened is basically a large portion of the population suddenly finds themselves in a flat or in a house, um, often at coffee tables, kitchen tables, on their beds, on sofas, trying to get their work done for hours and hours on end. And what is going to happen to all of us, unfortunately, that aren't equipped for working at home is um, our posture will be completely ruined. Um, so th this week I was talking to some experts about what happens to your body um, and to your mind and in fact to companies' pockets when we all start working from home quite quickly. So uh, the, the basics that people have been handed are, you know, uh, laptops, maybe if you're lucky, keyboards and mouse. Um, if you are very, very lucky at home, you will have an ergonomic chair, but that's not normally the case. And so you're, you're stuck in a situation that is um, uncomfortable and we don't know when it's going to end. So, uh, for example, last week, the um, entire of the Wired team started working from home. At the time, we thought it would be a couple of weeks. Now we're looking at potentially a couple of months or however long this situation lasts. And if you're sitting on a kitchen chair with a cushion under your bum uh, for eight hours a day and not moving around a lot, what's going to happen to you is just slow degradation of your entire body. Um, so, so that's basically the premise of my article this week, just looking at um, the kind of things that, that will happen to us because we've been forced to work from home and whether it's in fact a tenable position for companies to put workers in. Natasha, you're describing my setup. I'm on an uncomfortable chair at my 
dining table, I guess, but it's kind of just a plank on a couple of woods. On a couple of wood? <laughs> on a couple <laughs> of legs. And um, it's really not very comfortable. But uh, I guess like a lot of people, you know, we've been sent home in a rush, n- no chance to get the, the office chair or anything like that. Is there anything that we can do you know, with stuff that we've got around the the home or the flat to make this setup a little bit more bearable. Yeah, so I mean, there are, there are a few things that you can do. There are some tips that I got from some people who are specialists in posture. I mean, the, the first thing you should do is ask for a workplace assessment from your company. So one thing that people aren't really aware of is that your company is still responsible for your workplace environment, even when you're at home. So you can ask a company to say, I want you to look at my um, workplace environment to make sure that I am working at, you know, with my arms and elbows at an, a 90 degree angle to my screen, that I have the appropriate seating, that I have the appropriate tables. You can do that. And if they do not provide a workspace assessment, they are liable um, because it's, it's employment law. So basically they, they have to do that. So that's, that's step one. Um, the bare minimum that companies can do in a crisis such as this, which is unprecedented, is to give you a keyboard and a mouse. If they haven't done that, the recommendation is for you to just go out and buy one yourself uh, because th- those are the kind of things that you'll need the most. If you're working on a laptop, it'll be too low down, you'll be hunched over, your neck will be in pain, your shoulders will be in pain, and you'll create a lot of tension and stress on, on, your, on your body, basically, on your upper body. And if you can elevate your laptop... Um, that that will help. I mean, some some of the tips I can go through them if you want. That some of the tips that um that I've received is basically you can MacGyver your workspace, sort of somehow figure out ways to use things that you have around the house to make sure that you are at least doing the bare minimum to not hurt yourself. So it, someone was talking to me about cut it, using a cutting board and leveraging it against um, a book so that you can ha- you can use it for as a laptop stand. Um, you can use a lever arch file for the same reason you can uh, put books under your laptop Uh, you can hook up your television if you've got a flat screen television that is a good distance away move it on top of a a table and use it as your as your screen uh, for your computer rather than your laptop Um, you want to stand up really really often so the experts I've been speaking to have been saying every half hour at least you should stand up and stretch every hour you should be literally lying with your back against the floor with your legs up so that you're at a 90 degree angle so that you relax your back. Because if you're not doing that, you can like you can just seize up all the muscles in your back. Do not, under any circumstances, work on a sofa. That is the worst place apparently to work because not only are you sinking back into it, but also you have nowhere to put your computer. Um, it, people were saying if you don't have, let's say you don't have a, ta- a table, you don't have any kinds of means to improve your environment. If you have an ironing board, put your laptop on an ironing board, put your laptop on a, on a table in the kitchen. If you've got a desktop uh, table or a working space, or whatever, put it on there and stand up for a bit. Um, just do whatever you can to move around in the meantime and just don't, 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 whatever you do, do not sit um, basically on a bed or on a sofa where you'll just sink in and you'll have your laptop on your back. So th- those are the those are the things. And also um, people were saying there's still time to go and nick stuff from the office. So um, if you can go in and grab your keyboard, grab your mouse, People talking about, you know, just grab your your chair if you can and stuff it in the back of a car or in a taxi and just take it home because we're in this for the long haul. And that's what people 
don't seem to uh, be aware of at the moment when you're sitting down for about eight hours a day and you're thinking, oh, it's fine, I'll just do that extra bit of work. And in fact, you just, you're, you're actually going to potentially damage your body. People were saying to me today that um, there's going to be a lot of need for like, people going to the chiropractor after this because their backs will be completely ruined. Okay, so thank you very much for the good advice. Um, everything that I've been doing for the past week falls under your do not do this uh, warnings. I've been working in bed, on the sofa, on a cheap chair that I bought from Argos, on a laptop, hunched over. Um, I'm, I'm getting there. So today, Matt Reynolds and I bumped into each other in the wired office as we were frantically rummaging around for anything we could lay our hands on. So I've got a keyboard, a second monitor that I'm used to working with, a laptop stand. So I'm, I'm getting there. Um, but I, I still realize that my setup isn't ideal. Um, basically, I'm sat at a table I bought from Argos the other day on a chair that I also bought from Argos the other day. Um, it's a bit crap. Uh, what, what's everyone else's experience of working from home been like so far what what are what are your setups well i'm hoping when you say that you uh, bumped into matt reynolds that you didn't actually bump into him given you know we're no, all we, supposed we to stood be practicing three, social three distancing meters jokes. apart yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah I, mean, I think i'm probably in a similar situation to what natasha describes on uh, at my kitchen table on a kitchen chair you may have heard a, a knock at the door in the background as natasha was talking which was actually a delivery of a, a mouse um so i'm taking her words into effect i'm gonna raise my laptop screen to eye level instead of table height because um i understand that that's the best thing you can do for your neck but obviously to do that you need an external keyboard and mouse so yeah making those changes but counterpoint I do think, you know, we maybe also have to see the kind of sunny side of being forced from work to work from home and maybe occasionally working from bed or the sofa it is allowable if it's giving you a little bit of joy. Don't try no to get joy. any wiggle room. <laughs> it's not good for you, genuinely. Apparently, it just ruins your back and your legs. If, you, if you're sitting on a chair, by the way, that's a kitchen chair or like a dining chair, um, if you... If you can put a cushion under your bum to lift you up, that will help. And also, uh, experts were telling me if you put a box under your feet, that's good for you as well. So it, it takes sort of the pressure off your legs, apparently. But but in any case, I, I think what people really need to know is that, um, you know, even if you are in the situation where you're moving around and you're trying your best, there are people out there that don't have a table from Argos or a kitchen, ta or kitchen chair, kitchen table, any kind of scenario at all. And if you're in that situation where you're in a bed sit and you, you can only really sit on, on a sofa or bed scenario, um, it's your right to talk to your employer about this to see whether it's a reasonable expectation for you to carry on working from home because it might not be the case and they should be providing spaces for you to work. So Matt, Matt Reynolds, I'm kind of worried about your setup, to be honest, with your planks of woods. Um, no, how's Natasha, that working you out should, for you? You should see me now. Um, now, I, after, <laughs> as mentioned, as James mentioned, went into the office, did a bit of plundering. And now I've got a sweet monitor. I've got this keyboard. I've got my, uh, I've got my mouse here. So um, on it, I think I might do this permanently. Uh, in fact, I was just things thinking, are things yeah, are looking up. It, seriously, <laughs> the, the the monitor is almost as big as my TV. I might try and find a way to hang on to this. Um, no, but you're right. It was, before I was on a little MacBook Air, and um, you know, you're, I, I think there's this thing, right? Is it the top of your screen is meant to be at eye level? Is that a thing? Yeah, that's right. Right. 
Right, yeah, and I wasn't, I was kind of hunched down, you know, over the small keyboard and stuff, but now I feel, you know, now I feel like um, it's taken over uh, the kitchen table, that's for sure, so I've got, you know, might have to rearrange where I eat, uh, but I feel like this is a, more of a sustainable workplace. I think it's, like you said, we need to be thinking about places that you can sit in for three months, and it's all right to you know, work in a coffee shop or whatever, you know, for a day, but, like, you can't do that week in, week out, so it's all about moving to that sustainable way of working. Yeah. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What's your work from home setup like? Are you lucky enough to have a dedicated office room where you've got a lovely chair and desk, or are you making things work at the kitchen table, dining room table, sofa, bed, floor, bean bag? Do let us know how you're coping with this quite extraordinary situation. Or if you're an employer, how are you helping your team? work from home effectively podcast at wired.co.uk and we're going to finish on another really important part of this new normal that everyone's getting used to vicky which is the digital etiquette to keep everyone sane while we're working from home yeah i mean i guess the thing is for for most people working from home is a bit of a shock to the system and uh, if you're used to working in an office where you see your colleagues every day like we are and many many other people are um then it's a bit uh, a bit of an adjustment to suddenly have to communicate over digital tools instead of in person all the time, which, you know, some people may thrive on and others may really struggle with. So I think at this moment, it's more important than ever to kind of think about how you use digital tools to communicate in the workplace. Um, and I've been looking specifically at work email, um, the bane of everyone's lives, um, but, you know, still a very necessary part of most office style workplaces and I was speaking to some experts about whether you should have a sort of corporate email policy or not um, and whether you need to kind of lay down some ground rules um, and you'll be I'm sure surprised to learn that they they think you largely should <laughs> um, so I think what are what are the ground rules because email's annoying enough when you're in an office and you're seeing people but when your way of interacting is slack Zoom, Microsoft Teams, all of these things that aren't necessarily quite as good as human-to-human interaction, uh, email can become even more of a crapshoot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's one of those things that everyone sort of assumes, you know, oh, everyone knows how to email now. Um, but really, that's not necessarily the case. Like your standards may not be the same as someone else's and everyone's got their kind of own style. Certainly, so, you know, younger people growing up today who have grown up with the internet may never have emailed before getting into the workplace. You know, they'll have grown up with social media and haven't had to email socially. So they'll have never actually been exposed to that kind of medium for kind of conversing with a normal person um and also you know some people email differently some people email like letters some people email like text messaging and so on and so on so i think the main thing is to kind of make your expectations clear um, and this is what um, Gretchen McCulloch, who is an internet linguist, uh, was telling to me. She's got a really clear set of email guidelines on her website if you want to email her, which are actually quite useful for, for emailing anyone. Uh, but she was basically like, look, you can't get angry with someone for not doing what you want them to do if you haven't told them that in the first place. Like, You can't just assume that someone knows how you like to be emailed, uh, which a lot of us, I think, so she thinks it's worth kind of laying down some kind of guidelines, not necessarily like a strict email policy or anything, but just saying like, hey, like this is this is how we should do it. And her big thing is um, the two field, the subject line. Sorry, not the two field, the, the, the subject line. Um, 
and making your email kind of easy to triage. Uh, so being really descriptive um, and making it clear what your email is about. When it's in her inbox, she can then really quickly decide like what needs to be done with that. So I shouldn't put the subject line of my email as like thing or leave it blank or <laughs> exactly. make Leaving the entire body the of the email in the subject. <laughs> Leaving it blank is the worst. Or if you put something that's like useful for you, like say you put the other person's company name as the subject mm. line, that might be useful for you to then find it later because you've only emailed that company once. But for the other person, they're never going to be able to find that because they'll have tons of emails from people in their company in their inbox. Um, and yeah, so I what guess about other other digital etiquette tips for a healthy, happy working from home life? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the time that boundaries really have to be kind of made and respected. You know, just because you're working from home, when are you expected to be online and not? Um, you know, we see a lot of this kind of work creep happening when people use digital tools to communicate for work, where, you know, maybe people feel ex that like they're expected to be on call 24 seven. Uh, usually that isn't actually the case. Employers don't expect that. But if they don't make that clear, it doesn't alleviate that stress of feeling like you need to respond to everything immediately. Um, you know, having so at Wired, we're having sort of a daily Zoom check in, which is quite nice just to have some sort of social contact with your colleagues. Um, and I think that's that's a part that is maybe left out of the conversation a bit. Like, yes, it's really important to stay productive and to use tools appropriately to do that. But it's also important to kind of make sure everyone's doing all right when they haven't got that kind of major social interaction that they're used to in the day. So, you know, if that's kind of having a little friendly Slack chat on the side here and there, um, or, you know, making sure that you ask how people are doing in conversations rather than just discussing a work thing, really simple things um, to make sure that everyone's kind of staying in good spirits and good health. So how are we doing as, as a team, do you reckon? <laughs> are, are, we, uh, are we living up to the digital etiquette dream or do we have, still have some work to do? Obviously, a lot of it is subjective. I think we're doing pretty well in finding the balance between not like going mad with zillions of Slack messages and driving everyone crazy, uh, but also like having a little bit of fun on the side. Um, my, my number one rule, I would have to say, for video conferencing, which certain members of the Wired team don't seem to have got yet, naming no names, is to mute <laughs> when you're not speaking. <laughs> Um, you'll soon find if you're in a video call with lots of people, if you don't mute the microphone when you're not speaking, it will, it will just go like mad and you'll have loads of background noise. So if you take one tip away from this, naming no names, uh, <laughs> let it be that one. Nobody on this podcast, right? My lips are sealed. No, it's no one on We're this podcast. We're all terribly well behaved. <laughs> Um, podcast.wired.co.uk um, there's probably loads of questions that you guys have got about working from home digital etiquette um, getting used to remote working if it's not something that you've done an awful lot of how you're um, keeping in touch with your colleagues getting the same job done or maybe the nature of your work has fundamentally changed as a result of the lockdown in your country or the pandemic um, taking grip elsewhere in the world do get in touch with us podcast.wired.co.uk .co.uk. We're not going to read out any of your emails at the end of the show. Most of them came in before the coronavirus pandemic really took hold. Um, to some of them sound a little strange or a little bit flippant um, if we read them out now because it's in such a different context. But we really do love receiving your emails and we'll be bringing as many of them on the show next week as 
we can. So I hope our experiment with recording the podcast from the four corners, five corners of London was successful. Um, do let us know if you've got any issues with the audio quality or if there's anything you think we should be doing to make the show sound just as good as it did when we were all standing in a room in the wide offices. But that's it for this week. We'll be back again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.